You might notice it gets a little longer. And so when it happens, just enjoy that little place of rest between the exhale and the inhale. This is a way of becoming still by relaxing. All right, thank you very much. Take a deep breath and let it out with an audible sigh. <sighs> Let's do that again because we can. <sighs> and one more time. <sighs> Good. Now, you have this little place of rest with you always, everywhere you go. And anytime you tune into it, it can be for you a place of rest. So mind the gap. All right, I would invite you to stand with me to uh, say the Lord's Prayer together. Before we do that, why don't you shake out an arm, shake out your other arm, shake out a leg, shake out your other leg, shake out what you've been sitting on, shake out your voices. <sighs> Good, thank you. All right. Please join me in the prayer that Jesus taught. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated. All right. Uh, we're talking today a little bit about Buddhism. And I have kind of a full plate. Um, let me just, oh, you can't really see very well the two Chinese characters or Japanese characters that make up the name Wako. Uh, it rhymes with taco. That's how to pronounce it. And um, it means something like harmony and happiness. It was a name given to me uh, when I received ordination as a, as a novice priest of Soto Zen Buddhism in 2003. Um, and uh, maybe we can go to the next slide. My plan today um, is to tell you a little bit about, people always ask me, how did you become a Buddhist? And so I'll just get that out of the way um, and explain that. But we have a tradition in my particular type of Buddhism called the Way Seeking Mind Talk. And it's an opportunity to, for people to kind of talk about their spiritual journey and how they ended up where they are at the moment. So I'll give you a little bit of that. And then I'm gonna give you some very, very basic Buddhist ideas, some of it, the developments in Asia, um, a little bit of Buddhism in the United States, Buddhist diversity in the United States, um, and then I'm going to close with the Buddhist teaching on loving kindness. So um, I suppose I should just start by saying I'm going to lie to you, uh, because uh, you're going to get this much of a tradition that is huge, you know. 
So um, what you're getting is not even a mile wide and an inch deep. It's you know like a quarter inch wide and a millimeter deep. But I'll do my best to give you a little introduction. Um, I really do recommend this book uh, by Stephen Prothero, God is Not One. And what he's really trying to say is that um, religions are different. They have different ways of understanding the world. They have different problems they're trying to address. Um, and understanding those differences is as important uh, for, to being able to collaborate and work together as understanding the, the places that we have in common. And he talks about eight religious traditions. I'm not going to cover all of those, and I'm going to cover one that he doesn't. But in between time, um, as Dar said, I've, I'm offering you some resources that you can explore on your own to uh, give yourself a little more background. And um, I'm happy to do my best to answer questions um, for a bit after the service. So uh, his comparative method basically says that each religion, you could say, has a particular problem that it's trying to address, a particular solution that it proposes, a way between you know, the problem and solution, a, a path, a method, um, and an exemplar. So that's kind of how he, he does his comparative model. And uh, he's a very good scholar and very accessible writer. So uh, I hope you'll grab that book. All right, so how did I get here? Um, as Dar said, I grew up here in Browns Valley. Um, I went to school all through school and was briefly the college roommate of the youngest daughter of um, Donna and Randy Myrick. Um, Randy's memorialized on a bench out front, so I was here when this, uh, many, many years ago I visited this church with, with them. And um, my dad was the county planning director uh, for 20 years. He implemented the Ag Preserve that made the wine industry possible. My mom worked in social services. Um, and so I'm definitely a, a Napa kid. Um, I grew up in the first Presbyterian church in town. My parents were very involved there. Um, but they were also very broad-minded, intellectually curious people. They read very widely. Uh, they named our cats after Hindu and Egyptian deities. Um, they were into Alan Watts and Khalil Gibran and all kinds of stuff when I was young. And so, of course, I rebelled by joining a fundamentalist Pentecostal church. <laughs> and I loved it. I mean, I just threw myself into this community. But when you try to read the Bible literally, you run into questions very quickly. And um, the pastor was not equipped to deal with those, those questions. And so uh, one day, he went to the youth group and told them that I was not a Christian and that I was sowing seeds of discord. So the next time I showed up, no one would look at me or speak to me. I was formally shunned at 15. So that was a really devastating experience, and I was really angry about it, and I didn't want to have anything to do with religion for a while. I went off to college, first at Davis, and then I transferred to Berkeley. And while I was there, um, I got kind of interested in exploring the various religions that are present in Berkeley. Uh, everyone you can think of, and many you would never think of. Um, and I got interested in visiting various Buddhist communities, and I ended up settling at the Zen Center. I'm not entirely sure why. Um, in many ways, it is completely contrary to my character, but, <laughs> but uh, something about the meditation really uh, kept bringing me back, even though it was very difficult for me. Um, in uh, 1984, Ronald Reagan was running for re-election, uh, 
And uh, he was supported by the moral majority, uh, which uh, many of you may remember was an evangelical kind of fundamentalist group that was very active in politics, helped him get elected. And I was writing for the student newspaper, The Daily Californian. I was covering politics that summer. The moral majority held a conference in San Francisco a week before the Democratic National Convention as a kind of in your face, I think, to the gay community. And I went to cover it. I had some experience of fundamentalism, so I was not as, you know, sort of automatically hostile to it as some of my journalist colleagues were. So I went to Union Square, where I was confronted with the most astonishing array of police I had ever seen. Cops on foot, cops on horses, cops on motorcycles, a bomb squad, a SWAT team, hotel security guards, a metal detector. I mean, it was unbelievable. Um, and behind this, you know, artillery were um, a lot of, well, wealthy white people congratulating themselves about how they were right and everybody was wrong. They have the only one and only kind of pizza, that's it. And, um, I remember uh, a, a pamphlet that was being distributed by one of the groups there that showed a little blonde girl in shorts, ponytails, huddled like this in a corner, screaming with a big hairy arm hovering over her with an ax. And the title of this pamphlet was Murder, Violence, and Homosexuality. And another version of this pamphlet showed a little boy, a little white boy being dragged into a bathroom stall. Uh, and the, the pamphlet said, and then the person argued that um, gay people are inherently dangerous to society and a threat that needs to be neutralized. Outside, the demonstrators were screaming, go to hell, fall well, go to hell, fall well. And if he had walked out the door, they would have lynched him. Uh, and the police were busting heads. I mean, busting heads. It was violent everywhere. And I was devastated by this. Uh, I didn't know what to do with it. So I couldn't take sides. <clears throat> so I went to a meditation retreat. And at one point, a loud noise made, sparked me to start crying. And I couldn't stop. And I went to the teacher. And I said, I do not know what to do with this violence. And he said to me, you know, we can't scream and yell and holler for peace. If we want peace, we have to figure out how to be it. And for me, at 19 or 20, that was a new idea. So I took a semester off school, and I went to Green Gulch Farm uh, in Marin County, which is a semi-monastic community and an organic farm and conference center that's owned by San Francisco Zen Center. And I uh, went through my own process of coming out, and um, uh, I was doing a meditation retreat, a, a kind of an intensive day-long retreat at the very end of my stay there. At the very end of the very last period of meditation, I was sitting there, we sit facing a wall. And um, into my mind came an image of a police officer that I had seen at that moral majority conference. And he was in riot gear. Uh, his face was just like a stone. He had his baton out, and he was kind of shoving people onto the sidewalk, even though nobody was resisting him. And he seemed like the opposite of everything I thought was good and right and true. And I remember looking him in the eye and going, how can you do this? 
And then suddenly the boundary between me and this man dissolved. And I understood that I was where I was, doing what I was doing, because he was who he was, where he was, doing what he was doing. That our lives were absolutely inseparably bound up together. And that I had precisely the capacity for self-righteousness and judgment in the people that I criticized. So for me, that was the turning point. And that's when I really started uh, practicing Buddhism. Um, I worked, uh, my first career was as a journalist and editor. Um, I got um, a, a repetitive strain injury on the keyboard, uh, got trained to teach people uh, how to use voice activated computer systems when that technology was new. A company went out of business, I didn't know what to do next. So I went off to a monastery and got really, really quiet and sat with the question, what do I do? And uh, I decided that I wanted to go back to school and study religion academically, and I wanted to go someplace where I could st study the Bible without getting into trouble for asking questions. So I went to Pacific School of Religion, which is part of the Graduate Theological Union uh, in Berkeley. It's an ecumenical and interfaith consortium of schools. And I was at PSR, um, and I was taking classes also at the Institute of Buddhist Studies and at Star King School for the Ministry, which is a Unitarian school. And um, it, not only did I not get into trouble for asking questions about the Bible, but my professor said, hey, great questions. Here's some tools for exploring them. Let us know what you find out. And it was awesome. It was awesome. And uh, I did a lot of work emotionally and kind of healed that old wound and discovered breadth and depth and, uh, and beauty in Christianity that I had not known before. Um, I also got involved in uh, chaplaincy after my, my best friend from high school died at 33 of alcoholism and AIDS. Um, and um, at, so I was ordained um, at the end of my, my uh, master's studies and then went off to do a PhD. Um, I also worked uh, as a chaplain, a Buddhist chaplain at Duke and at Johns Hopkins. Um, I taught at a couple of universities, um, and uh, my academic department basically got dismantled. Uh, and I decided at that point in 2018, after my dad had died, that I really needed to come home here. I have to feel a deep, deep, like bodily connection to this particular land. And so I, I needed to come home. So I've come home, and uh, I'm working as a hospice chaplain. And uh, I have been involved in the local interfaith community. I've been involved in Buddhist, Christian, and interfaith dialogue for my entire kind of academic career. And that's how I met Pete. And um, I love that guy. And I love his theology. And uh, I, I love being here. So thank you very much. So that's a little bit about how I got here. Um, what else shall I say here? Uh, let's, uh, let's go to the next slide. Buddhism is basically, I would say, about the question, why do we suffer and how can we stop? That is really kind of the fundamental question. It's a non-theistic religion, meaning the Buddha didn't deny the existence of God or a god, a god or gods. They were sort of part of his ancient Indian worldview, but they are not relevant to the Buddhist spiritual path. 
So that's what I mean by non-theistic. The Buddha was not interested in questions about where do we come from and how do we get here and what happens after we die. He wouldn't address those metaphysical questions. He says, my teaching is about why do we suffer and how can we stop? And um, that question comes out of his own life experience. Next slide, please. This is uh, an image of the, the Siddhartha Gautama. Okay, so Siddhartha was his personal name. Gautama was his family name. And he belonged to the Shakya clan. So when he became the Buddha, the enlightened one, it's a title, he, he was called Shakya Muni Buddha, the sage of the Shakya clan. And that's to distinguish him from other Buddhas. He's not the first and he, and, and he won't be the last. Um, and this particular image depicts him at the moment of his uh, awakening. So the story about him essentially is that um, he was born into the ruling class, the warrior class, and uh, his father was a clan chieftain and he was a young sort of princeling and uh, his father uh, talked to a, um, a, a diviner, a, a seer, a, a prophet, you might say, uh, who said that this child is either going to grow up to be a great king or a great religious teacher. And dad wanted him to go into the family business. So he made sure that his son was not exposed to anything that might evoke kind of spiritual questions. So he lived in very lavish circumstances and he was, he was married and he had a son and everything was copacetic, but he slipped out of the compound one day with his charioteer and um, they're going along and uh, they see an old man and Siddhartha says to his charioteer, what's the matter with that guy? And the charioteer says, well, he's old. That happens to everybody. We all are subject to aging. So then on another trip, they go out and they see somebody who's very sick. And he, said, he says to his charioteer, what's the matter with that guy? And uh, the charioteer says, well, he's sick. Everybody is subject to uh, illness. And then they go out a third time and they see a, a corpse being carried to the uh, cremation grounds. Unfortunately, there is all too much of that going on in India right now. Uh, and the Buddha said, or the Siddhartha says to his charioteer, what is the matter with that guy? And the charioteer says, he's dead. Everybody is subject to death. And then on the last trip, they go out and he sees this kind of wandering sage who is very peaceful. And he's really struck by that. So he drops everything. He, um, he leaves his wife, goes off into the forest, cuts off his hair, studies meditation and the yogas very deeply, um, learns very kind of intensive, deep, deep kinds of meditation, but doesn't quite come to the answer to his question. Why is, do we suffer fundamentally and how can we stop? So. Uh, he does all of these ascetic practices. He nearly starves himself to death. He's trying to like overcome the body. He's on the verge of death uh, with a number of companions. And he says, well, if I die, I'm not going to get the answer to my question. So he accepts some food uh, from a young woman. And his friends decide he's a sellout. And you know they scat. 
So he sits down under a tree and he says, I'm not getting up until I get the answer to my question. So he sits there and sits there and sits there and goes through all kinds of things. Um, you know, he's tempted by a demon and et cetera. And finally, uh, he, he, one morning he looks up and he sees the morning star and he, he is awakened. And um, he touches the earth, as you'll see here in this image. He's touching the earth kind of to bear witness to his awakening. Because the, the demon, the tempter's last kind of attempt is, well, who do you think you are to think you're awakened? And he touches the earth and the earth quakes in response. So he doesn't think people are going to understand what he has to say. Uh, so he's reluctant to teach, but he's persuaded to do so. Uh, and he eventually gets up and goes and teaches his first sermon. But before I kind of explain the content of that, I want to just give you some basic assumptions about Buddhism. So a basic assumption about Buddhism, a fundamental assumption, is that everything without exception is impermanent. Everything is changing all the time. Process is all there is. There's nothing but change. And the next is that everything is related to every other thing. Can you click the next? Uh... Nope. Previous slide. And then another click. Can you press the arrow? There you go. Thank you. Everything is related to every other thing. If everything is processed, then everything is connected, right? And this is called interdependent co-arising. One way you could think about it is that this thing is, what is this thing? It's paper, right? What's paper made of? Tree. What does a tree need to exist? Soil, water, light, etc. How does a tree get to be paper? Somebody cuts the tree down, right? And what did the lumberjack have for breakfast? Oatmeal, perhaps. And where did the oatmeal come from, right? And who fed him the breakfast? And the lumberjack puts the or uh, uh, the lumberjack puts the tree on a truck that's made out of metal that was mined out of the earth and manufactured someplace, right? And shipped off to a factory where it's various other people are involved in the processing of paper, etc., until it finally comes to you on this planet that is just the right distance from the sun to have trees and water uh, in this ama amazing vast cosmos. And you could say, therefore, that absolutely everything that exists is involved in the existence of this piece of paper, which is impermanent and will disintegrate and turn into something else, right? Uh, so uh, the next point, you know, there you go, is that actions have effects, right? This is the idea of karma. Um, and so, uh, last one, please. We embody these truths. If we study the teachings of the Buddha and our own bodies and minds, we can develop insight into the fact that everything is changing, and therefore everything is precious because it is impermanent, Right? And everything is connected to every other thing. And when you really deeply understand this, um, it evokes, hopefully, wisdom 
about the ways that we're com connected, and compassion for others who suffer, right? And uh, doing these kinds of practices also help us to develop other good qualities and to be able to make and distribute pizza, as Pete would say, right? Okay, so uh, next slide, please. Uh, the Buddha's first sermon was called, he taught the Four Noble Truths. And the first truth is life entails suffering. Um, the word suffering is actually a little bit strong. It's the most common translation of the word dukkha. But uh, it actually means something more like dissatisfaction. And the image of it is like a, a, a wheel that's not quite true on its axle and it wobbles and it... We've always got this kind of something's not quite right. Right? And that's a fact of life. That is the bedrock on which the Buddhist teaching is based. Next, the root cause of this dissatisfaction is the fact that we do not understand the ways that everything are impermanent and everything is connected. And so it causes us to try to hang on to things that we like that change or to push away things that we don't like, right? Or to just be, to be deluded about the whole thing and uh, caught up in our self-concern. So ignorance leads to greed, hatred, and delusion, right? That's the, the first uh, truth kind of talks about the symptom, suffering, dissatisfaction, right? This is the etiology the uh, origin of the disease, you might say. Next is the prognosis. Liberation is actually possible. We can be liberated from our suffering in the midst of it by turning toward it. And finally, the path to liberation is an eightfold path. I'm not going to go over all eight uh, in any kind of detail, but they sort of break down into moral conduct, if we, if we get our lives in order, we, um, uh, we can have peace of mind. So moral conduct supports meditation, which leads to wisdom, which leads to moral conduct, which leads to meditation, which leads to wisdom, etc. cetera. Uh, let's go beyond the Four Noble Truths uh, slide and, and go to the Eightfold Path. This is probably really hard to see, and as I say, I don't want to go into detail. But uh, moral conduct involves right speech, right conduct, and right livelihood, controlling your speech, controlling your behavior, uh, having a, a non-exploitive uh, livelihood. And then uh, that's moral conduct. That supports meditation, right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration, which lead to right view and right intention. That's wisdom. That's kind of how the path works. And if you want to talk about that more, we could have another conversation another time. Um, all right. so. Next slide, please. Buddhism starts here in uh, North India, up here near what is now Nepal, and, and uh, develops here. And then it goes down to Sri Lanka. And then from Sri Lanka, it, it spreads throughout Southeast Asia here to uh, Myanmar and Laos and Thailand and et cetera. And uh, it also goes east to China and north uh, to what is uh, to Tibet, and from China it goes to Vietnam, and then it goes to uh, Korea, and then from Korea and China it goes to Japan, etc. So, next slide. Here's a sort of a simpler diagram. Starts in India, uh, it goes down to Southeast Asia, uh, up to north to uh, Tibet, 
Mongolia, Bhutan, uh, east to China, Korea, Japan, etc. Right. So that's kind of how it moves. And as with any religion, as it moves into different cultures, it adopts parts of those cultures and also changes the cultures. So next slide. There are basically three categories, three major categories of Buddhism. You could think of them similarly to the um, Roman Catholic, uh, Protestant, and Orthodox streams of Christianity, right? So from the fourth to the uh, 11th century, there's the Roman Catholic Church, and then the Orthodox Church breaks off in the 11th century, and then in the 16th century, the Protestant Reformation breaks off, right? And then we've got within each of those categories, tremendous diversity. Right? So the same is true of Buddhism. It's not monolithic. It's very diverse. And the Southeast Asian tradition is called the Theravada. It's really a, a monastic path. Um, and the emphasis is on monastic practice. Uh, the next uh, is Mahayana. The, it's called, it calls itself the Great Vehicle. And uh, it prevails in East Asia, China, and the traditions influenced by it, including my own. Um, and it, it's open to both lay people and monastic people. And then uh, Vajrayana, the, the kind of Buddhism that prevails in Tibet, uh, is, a, is a particular kind of Mahayana Buddhism that uses particular methods. Um, it claims to be a really powerful spiritual technology uh, for awakening, and so it needs to be undertaken very carefully under the tutelage of a trained master and, and uses particular methods. So these different streams each has a lot of diversity within them. They have different collections of scripture. Uh, they have somewhat different understandings of the nature of Buddha, um, the nature of Nirvana, uh, and the path or the methods. So um, again, there's a whole lot of diversity, and I'm not going to do it any kind of justice here. In the United States, next slide. Buddhism came on both the East Coast and the West. Right on the East Coast, white scholars got interested in texts being translated by European scholars uh, of Asian languages or Asian religions for the first time. So the the British and other colonial powers go out over Asia and start colonizing, and scholars, accompanied by missionaries, begin to translate these foreign texts. And people get kind of interested on that level. On the east, on the west coast, of course, uh, Japanese and Chinese immigrants bring their religions with them uh, and face a lot of hostility and discrimination. Uh, and in 1893, uh, at the Columbian Exposition, uh, just before that, there's a, an event called the World Parliament of Religions. And for the first time, mostly white people met actual practitioners of Buddhism and other world religions for the first time at this event. And uh, there were a couple of Buddhist speakers who just wowed the crowd. Uh, and they uh, went on national tours. And interest in Buddhism actually became quite uh, the thing around the turn of the 20th century. Um, <clears throat> let's see. Uh, next slide. What's kind of interesting, I think, to me, is the, I, is the fact that the missionaries, the Buddhist missionaries, uh, were facing a lot of pressure in their home countries from colonialism and from persecution and that sort of thing. And what they did was um, they went out and learned uh, Western philosophy and methods of textual study and et cetera 
and they kind of repackaged Buddhism in Western terms. So they characterized Buddhism as very rational and philosophical uh, as opposed to all that magical miracle stuff in Christianity, right, which was coming under question as new scientific discoveries were beginning to uh, kind of challenge the literal uh, account of creation, new discoveries in pa uh, paleontology and biology and uh, astronomy and et cetera were beginning to kind of cause a lot of crisis of faith and people were kind of interested in seeking. And so they, they sort of pushed aside all of the many magical kinds of things about uh, Buddhism. And they claimed that it was comp it's compatible with modern science. They emphasized a kind of individualistic approach to it rather than a communal one. And they emphasized meditation, or as we now say, mindfulness. And um, so this kind of form of Buddhism made a lot of sense to Westerners because it was designed to do so. It's very kind of successful strategy in that way. However, actually the most important Buddhist practice is not meditation, but generosity. And generosity has three dimensions. They are giving material aid, as this church does so well, giving spiritual aid, uh, which this church also does very well, and uh, the gift of fearlessness, both your own courage and creating environments where other people need not be afraid. And I think the warm-hearted, all-inclusive welcome uh, of this church uh, is an expression of that kind of fearlessness. Um, for most Buddhists throughout history, uh, practice has really focused on rituals, actually, um, to honor ancestors, uh, to get, you know, practical benefits like healthy babies and good crops and that kind of thing. Um, and uh, the idea is that when you do a Buddhist practice, like you recite a scripture uh, or you, you give or any of these things you do, uh, it generates good karma, merit. And you don't keep that merit for yourself, you give it away. You dedicate it to the welfare of others. And I was uh, figuring, I was probably gonna have to skip the next two slides, so let's just do that. Next slide, yeah. Uh, no, oh yeah, thank you, perfect. So I'm gonna end here uh, with the Buddha's teaching on loving kindness. So uh, let's see, can you, uh, let's see, why don't we stand? as you're able and willing. And you can join me uh, in reciting this if you like. The Buddha's teaching on loving kindness. This is what should be accomplished by the one who is wise, who seeks the good and has attained peace. Let one be strenuous, upright, and sincere, without pride, easily contented and joyous. Let one not be submerged by the things of the world. Let one not take upon oneself the burden of riches. Let one's senses be controlled. Let one be wise, but not puffed up. And let one not desire great possessions, even for one's family. Let one do nothing that is mean or that the wise would reprove. May all beings be happy. May they be joyous and live in safety. All living beings, whether weak or strong, in high or middle or low realms of existence, small or great, 
visible or invisible, near or far, born or to be born, may all beings be happy. Let no one deceive another or despise any being in any state. Let none by anger or hatred wish harm to another. Even as a mother at the risk of her life watches over and protects her only child, so with a boundless mind should one cherish all living beings, suffusing love over the entire world, above, below, and all around without limit. So let one cultivate an infinite goodwill toward the whole world, standing or walking, sitting or lying down, during all one's waking hours, let one practice the way with gratitude, not holding to fixed views, endowed with insight, freed from sense appetites. One who achieves the way will be freed from the duality of birth and death. Next slide. With full awareness, we have recited the Buddha's teaching on loving kindness. Any merit generated thereby, I offer to the welfare of all sentient beings. May they and we together continue to grow and deepen in wisdom and compassion. Amen. Please be seated.